Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we transport your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this second Martian edition, astrobiologists Bonnie Teese and Martin Van Cronendonk and astrophysicist Kirsten Banks continue our conversation about NASA's Perseverance mission, choosing a landing site and the search for life on Mars. But first, here's news of Julian Assange, being arrested. Again. Julian Assange is being murdered slowly for the crime of publishing war crimes committed by US special forces in Afghanistan, the American government and United Kingdom government with a wink and a nod from the Australian government, have weaponised the British courts to deny Julian Assange the basic rights of due process that's enshrined in the basic constitutional law of all three nations. The British government are keeping Julian Assange in a maximum security prison that's ridden with COVID-19 without any charges. Julian has health issues caused by his torture by the British government that makes him particularly vulnerable to dying from coronavirus if he catches it. The judge claimed that the reason that Julian Assange, with no charges under British law, must stay in maximum security while people convicted of non-violent crimes have been released to prevent them catching COVID-19 is because he's a flight risk at a time when no flights are leaving the UK. The United Nations Rapporteur on Torture concluded that Mr Assange has been deliberately exposed for a period of several years to persistent and progressively severe forms of cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment or punishment, the cumulative effects of which can only be described as psychological torture. Mr Assange's lawyers informed the court that during a single day on 22nd of February, prison authorities handcuffed him 11 times placed him in five different cells, strip-searched him twice, and confiscated his privileged legal documents. Overseeing the proceedings, District Judge Vanessa Baretza explicitly refused to intervene with prison authorities, claiming that she has no jurisdiction over his prison conditions, despite precedent and law that show that she does. International psychiatrists and psychologists have cited this as further evidence of psychological torture. The American government is seeking to extradite Julian Assange to America to be tried for treason against a nation he doesn't belong to because they claim all journalism is spying and their jurisdiction is the whole world. They've never had to answer for which hostile nation they accused Julian of spying for. Australia... They plan to have the spying trial in the infamous jurisdiction of the Eastern District of Virginia, where no national security defendants have ever won a case. The jury pool in the Eastern District of Virginia is taken from people who work at the NSA, CIA, FBI and their families. 
American government prosecutors state Julian will be under special administrative measures. This means that before, during and after his trial in the USA, Julian would be subject to solitary confinement. His lawyers, Julian and his family would all be gagged from speaking to anyone about Julian, including each other. Julian would be banned from seeing, hearing or reading all TV, radio, newspapers, phone calls and internet. He would be subject to mandatory pointless strip searches while in solitary confinement and further torture. Who could he tell? It would be completely impossible for Julian to conduct the defence he's entitled to under due process. Julian Assange's lawyers have been working on the defence against the extradition charges for the last 12 months. The defence lawyers have submitted the defence to court, but the American government has announced that they're putting through a whole new raft of charges. The charges are all political in nature, which makes these extradition illegal under the US-UK extradition treaty. It's also illegal under the treaty to extradite Julian if he will be tortured, as is assured by special administrative measures. The Espionage Act he will be charged under has a death penalty. It's also a violation of British law to extradite people to a nation where they may be executed. President Trump recently reinstated the federal death penalty. The courts in Spain have revealed that the American government illegally contracted a Spanish company to spy on Julian Assange while he was in political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy, with the collusion of the Ecuadorian government, who were paid billions by the American government for their cooperation. They planted cameras and microphones to record his private conversations with his lawyers that are supposed to be protected by law. When Julian was arrested, they stole all of his legal documents and notes. None of them have been returned even to this day. The American prosecution have copies of both the conversations with his lawyers and all of his legal notes. Julian himself has not been allowed to see his own legal records or notes. In the US, this is unconstitutional and would cause a case to be dismissed. In the UK, this is illegal and would call for the case to be dismissed. The judge isn't bothered. Julian Assange has not been permitted to see his family or his lawyers since March 2020. He was finally allowed access to a computer to conduct his defence in June 2020 for the first time since he was imprisoned at Belmarsh early last year. Only to find that the keys on the keyboard had been carefully glued down. Julian can read documents on this computer, but he's not able to take notes. Even if he had a working keyboard, he doesn't have permissions to save files. This is par for the course for the way Julian Assange is treated in British jurisdiction. It's all highly illegal. Before shutdown, he appeared in court in a glass box with no microphone or speakers so he couldn't hear the proceedings or speak to his lawyers. After lockdown, the communal video booth in Belmarsh Prison is never cleaned, so it's a health risk and the prison authorities regularly forget to bring him to the booth in time for hearings, or they certify that it's not safe for him to do so because of coronavirus. Only five journalists are allowed to listen in on virtual court proceedings, and they inevitably find that they can't hear anything. Due process is blocked at every possible stage. 
Julian Assange's lawyers now expect that the American prosecution will throw out all of the old charges and re-arrest Julian on new charges to start the whole process up again. He'll be re-arrested in court. It looks like having tortured him half to death, they're making sure Belmarsh's COVID-19 outbreak is likely to finish him off. An array of 152 eminent legal experts from around the world, along with 15 legal associations, have written an open letter to the British Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary, Secretary of State for Justice and Home Secretary, outlining Julian's illegal treatment in 10 detailed pages and concluding that the UK government is legally obligated to grant Mr Assange his long overdue freedom, freedom from torture, arbitrary detention and deprivation of liberty and political persecution. Here's Kristen Hrafsnan, WikiLeaks editor-in-chief. This morning we saw a continuation of the travesty of justice that Julian Assange is getting all too familiar with, and it's getting worse and worse. We learned that uh, William Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, has issued a replacement extradition request, supposed to replace the superseding indictment. Furthermore, we learned that this document was presented on July 29th. That is two days after the deadline to submit documents to the court. This is two days after Julian's lawyers have presented all their arguments, all their evidence to the court. Of course, this should be thrown out immediately. This makes no sense at all. Furthermore, the hearing this morning was not open justice. Only five journalists were allowed into the courtroom. All the other journalists, dozens of them, plus representatives from NGOs, were put on a hold on a phone-in service. They waited for an hour because Belmar's prison had yet again failed to produce Julian Assange into the video booth to be able to attend to court. When he finally attended, it emerged that the prosecution was not present. Then the group was directed to the wrong courtroom. And when, the, when that was amended, finally, it emerged that the Barrager's court was not connected to the conference call. This is a total farce. It's a very dark one because we learned this morning that a new psychiatric evaluation shows that Julian's health has deteriorated over the last few months. And no wonder he has not seen his family or his friends for five months. He has not seen his lawyers for five months. This, of course, has to end. This only ends if the public, if you, take a stand. You have to bear witness, because if this continues, you will be bearing witness to the worst judicial scandal in decades in the United Kingdom. It cannot happen. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. How do we search for life in the solar system and beyond? Bonnie Teese is a PhD candidate at the Australian Centre for Astrobiology 
at the University of New South Wales. Kirsten Banks is a PhD student at the University of New South Wales studying galactic archaeology. Martin van Cronendonk is director of the Australian Centre for Astrobiology and a professor of geology at the University of New South Wales. I spoke to all three of them by Zoom and continued by asking, isn't it really hard to land on Mars? That's right. Landing on Mars is very, very difficult. Trying to get through the atmosphere and land safely. It's called the seven minutes of hell dubbed by NASA because by the time that Percy gets to Mars, it will be in around mid-February. And when in mid-February, Mars will be at least nine light minutes away from the Earth. So any sort of signal we get from Percy will be a nine minute delay. So by the time we get that signal saying, hi, I'm at the top of the atmosphere right now, I'm making my way down, Percy would have already landed either safely or crash landed and hopefully safely. And at that distance, remote control, there's no hope at all over nine minutes. No hope at all. It's just sit back, cross everything and hope. Hope that your science and your engineering has been enough to land safely on Mars, which at this point should be very good because we've landed, well, we as in NASA and many other organisations have landed many successful missions on Mars. So should be all good. But again, fingers crossed. (laughs) Never know what can happen. So the Centre for Astrobiology, in addition to the Mars mission, what else have you been engaged in? Well, Bonnie and I and uh, another couple of PhD students have attended by invitation the NASA workshops to choose a landing site. So I, I mentioned before that, you know, if you've got an entire planet to go and explore, where would you actually go? You know, would you look informally if there was a deep ocean or would you go look in lakes or rivers or a cave or the land surface? You know, what kinds of rocks, sandstone, conglomerate, limestone? We've got this endless choice of material to investigate, but what is the single place you can get to one spot on Earth, like, for example, where would you go? Most people would choose a beautiful tropical reef, of course. Those probably never existed on Mars. So the question is, how do you find that needle in a haystack? And so for really five or six years, the community as a whole, by invitation from NASA, was brought together to discuss what would be the best sites to land in. And there are about 30 or or so sites originally. They got whittled down to eight and then eventually to three and finally down to a chosen site. So they're going to this location called Jezero Crater which is one of a a million billion craters on Mars. But this one specifically has a beautiful river that was flowing into it about three billion years ago. And when that river came over the lip of the crater and fell into the bottom, it let its sediment load out into a beautiful delta. So think the Mississippi Delta or, you know, the deltas that are out in front of any of the big rivers, those on Earth are rich in organic matter. In fact, Some of our biggest petroleum finds or hydrocarbon reserves are from those kinds of deposits. And so they identified that as a potential place to look for a signature of life. And specifically, they found that in the Jezero Delta, there were clays at the very far end of the delta, what they call the toe of the delta. And clays are known to be able to bind to organic matter. And so they figure that clays can actually you know, absorb and concentrate organic matter that may have been washed in by the river 
or they're very fertile places on their own with nutrients that could have had its own microbial population. So that's the prime mission target are those clays at the toe of the Jezero Delta. And then there are a whole bunch of other rock types that they can look at. But it was interesting being part of that discussion because there was everything from like a, a deep valley deposit to go and look at caves, to look at hot spring deposits, which is the place that we were advocating for. But in the end, you know, the community actually all voted. The first time I went there, you know, they actually had from all these different landing sites, then they actually had the whole room of NASA scientists and engineers and academics and post-grad students and grad students. They actually had them just sit there and put their hand up and say, I vote for this. And so it came to sort of a green light, orange light, red light kind of voting scenario. And that's how the sites were actually whittled down. And in the end, then those three sites were recommended to the expert panel and they chose to, to go to Jezero. But our site with the hot spring deposits was in the top three. So we were involved right until the very end decision. And we still think that's a very good site to go to, a very exciting place to go and investigate. But Jezero also will have lots of exciting information for sure. And so Mars was very different long ago. It had flowing water. Yeah, it's hard to believe, Ian, but once upon a time in Mars's early history, it was warm and wet with active volcanoes, you know, not unlike Earth. And so when we look back at the history of the Earth, the very early Earth was also very different than the Earth we know today. It didn't have an oxygenated environment, for one thing. And so when we look really back in time at the beginning of Earth's history and the beginning of life on Earth, we might be getting a window to what life might have been like on Mars if it ever got started there. If we tried to go further afield than Mars, are there other ways we can look at faint signs of non-chemical reactions of, of something that might be life further than Mars? So with exoplanets, they're the main struggle with trying to find any sort of signs of life on an exoplanet is distance. They're a lot farther away than Mars, than Venus, than Mercury, any of the planets or potential moons within our solar system that might potentially harvest life. And we also have to deal with the brightness of the star that these planets orbit around as well. So not only is it difficult to detect any sort of life signatures on an exoplanet, it's also difficult to detect exoplanets full stop depending on what sort of configuration they're in, whether we are detecting them by the transit method. So if a planet passes in front of its star, momentarily dimming the light of its star, or if it's in other forms as well. There have been some signatures that we have seen in exoplanet studies where they have been able to understand the atmosphere around a particular exoplanet, which is very, very cool. But as far as I know, that's about the top tier of detail that we can get from exoplanets at this current time with our technology. We are also able to explore some other very distant worlds. And, you know, some of those include moons of the giant gas planets in our outer solar system. And so there are two really exciting missions that are going ahead. One is to Enceladus, which is a large moon of Saturn that's covered by water ice, by ice. And through that ice, through cracks in the ice, there are these jets of water that are coming out into space. And we've been involved actually with a colleague of ours from the University of Santa Cruz in California, Dave Diemer, who's designed this technology that can analyze tiny amounts of organic matter in a patented technology called nanobore 
And the idea is to actually fly through those water jets with his little organic molecule detector, nanopore, on the mission. And that can actually isolate if there are strands of RNA or DNA, you know, the building blocks of life. So they can look for these complex life signature molecules, not by even landing on the planet, but just by flying through its spit, basically. I love it. And the other big one is uh, they're planning a mission to the moon Titan. And Titan's really interesting because it has lakes of liquid methane. Oh, it's a totally alien world. But it's, again, rich in organic molecules, perhaps, you know, the right elements for building up life. And they're planning to send a helicopter to Titan and go and sample the lakes. So there's lots of exciting exploration of our own solar system and then the exoplanets. They're harder and harder. Each of those is like a step of magnitude of order uh, more difficulty. But with exoplanets, one thing they can do is now they've refined their technology. They can start to look at the atmosphere of the planets. And so some planets have just carbon dioxide, some have nitrogen like us, and others have oxygen. As far as we know, Earth is unique in having a lot of oxygen, and that's actually a biosignature. The oxygen is produced by life in enough of a concentration to maintain that 17% global oxygen content. And so people have started to think about, can we just analyze the structure of planets? And if they diverge from what's expected, maybe that's something to explore more fully and, and could be even a, a biosignature, what they call it, a signature of life. As a nation, we should be very proud that there are three Australians who have been and who are intimately involved with the Mars 2020 mission. Two are the principal scientist and deputy scientist for the Pixel instrument on Perseverance rover. They're actually the ones who are leading, who designed, who nominated that instrument to go on board and will be running the science when the rover lands on the surface. And then we have another um, Australian, Adrian Brown, who's at NASA headquarters, who's the deputy project scientist for Mars 2020. He's been helping to organize and do all the administration logistics to get that mission going. And all three of those Australians were trained at the Australian Centre of Astrobiology. And so we're, we're very proud that we have a long-standing and continuing relationship with space exploration that involves Australians at the very highest level of international science. And I think that's something that the whole country can be justifiably proud mm -hmm. of. Absolutely. In Australia, we're really fortunate to hold these rocks that we've been talking about earlier that are such good preservers of such ancient life. And these rocks become the training ground for the next generations of astrobiologists and for thinking about what Mars could have looked like. So in Australia, we're producing world-class astrobiologists that can work at the highest level that have been trained on rocks from our country. And it's a significant contribution for our country to be making. Absolutely. And I think Kirsten really touched on that as well, is that you may think that Australia is far away and these projects are, are big and very remote, but it's not. If you've got a passion for science and for getting involved in any sort of endeavor, there are always opportunities. And the world, maybe not right now in COVID-19, but the world is a relatively small place and interchangeable. The science community is one where people know one another. Even though there are researchers all around the world, the specific fields become like a family. And it's a really nurturing environment for becoming involved. I was talking about going to the landing site workshops. 
Now, that was one of the great opportunities to be able to bring students along and get exposed to what's going on and get involved and make connections and stuff. So it's that kind of a world that science fosters. And, and Kirsten would know that. She's been involved in a lot of opportunities, gets invited to lots of different kind of events and then asked to lead events. And that's a natural progression. And, and depending on your passion, involvement, skill and talents, you can move right up and be involved in unbelievable exciting research of new discoveries. And so that's a real opportunity that science provides and that Australia has and does very well. I totally agree. Well, Bonnie, Kirsten, Martin, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us, Ian. Thank you. This has been fun. Our pleasure, Ian. Great. That was the second and final part of my discussion with Bonnie Teese, Kirsten Banks and Martin Van Cranendonk about Perseverance's search for life on Mars. The video of the Zoom interview will go onto YouTube soon. You can see the video of my interviews with James Hayes about odour and Ian Bryce about masks on the Diffusion YouTube channel. www.youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? <coughs> Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com support. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. 
in the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.